Today's scripture reading is from John 12, 1 through 8. And it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Thanks for the reading of the word. Thanks, Grace. Um, well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Risen. Uh, we're a uh, new church here, so if you're new, that, that's great. You're in good company. We're new. Um, I'm Pastor Rich. I'm glad that you're here. And, uh, you know, our vision is to share Jesus, of course, and, but also to see lives transformed by him, right? We want to share Jesus and see people come to faith, right, to get baptized, to be converted. But we also want to see Jesus then transform all of us together into his likeness, right? And so right now we're going through a sermon series called Encounters with Jesus. And for the next month or so, we're taking a look at these several encounters Jesus has with his people, uh, or with people, different people, and we're going to see why they're important and what they mean to us. And today we're going through, as Grace read, John chapter 12, uh, which, by the way, this specific story is also found in uh, Mark 14 and Matthew 26. And so if you kind of take these three readings together, you kind of get the complete picture of everything that happened. Uh, today we're looking at four things in our passage. We're going to look at first the concept of worship. Uh, then secondly, we're going to take a look at distorted worship. Thirdly, we're going to take a look at fearless worship. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at worship revival. So first, the concept of worship. You know, this word worship is not something uh, we typically use uh, in, in, in modern America, at least. Um, and, and when we do use it or when we hear of it, it's usually used in the context of religion or spirituality. It's usually connected to some aspect of religious tradition and religious observance, which uh, really communicates worshiping a higher power, right, that is in control and is able to be this guiding light for humanity for their purpose, principles, for their affairs. Right? That's usually what we think about when we hear this word worship. But if you look up the word religion in the Webster Dictionary, it gives a more common definition. Uh, the definition doesn't mention God, it doesn't mention religion, it doesn't even mention spirituality. Uh, here's what it reads. Religion, a set of strong beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs. Right, so religion, to the Webster Dictionary, is just a set of strong beliefs right, uh, concerning the cause and sort of nature and purpose of the universe, but it also sort of has this moral code that governs how we live our lives. Webster Dictionary has some sample sentences. Uh, one of them is, in society, beauty and youthfulness 
is a religion, right? Um, that's sort of our purpose. That's sort of this moral code in how we conduct ourselves. We value beauty and youthfulness. Another one, uh, a sample sentence, is politics is a religion. And so you don't have to go to church, you don't have to go to a mosque or mass or the synagogue or temple to be religious. That's what the Webster Dictionary is saying. Uh, you, you just have to have a set of strong beliefs that directs your purpose, your desires, and how you conduct your affairs, uh, which is really everyone. And so anything can be a religion. Uh, the psychologist and counselor Paul Tripp, he says that one helpful way to identify your personal uh, religion is to identify what is at the intersection between the sadness and the joy of your heart. Right? Worship is not just logical, it is deeply emotional, it is deeply spiritual, it is deeply personal. And so he's saying you can identify what your purpose is, uh, what, the, uh, what, you know, uh, what, how, what conducts your affairs when you take a look at the intersection between the sadness and the joy of your heart. In other words, what he's saying is you can identify your inner religion when uh, you can identify what you really worship when, when a change or shift in specific circumstances causes your emotions to go radioactive. You know? Um, maybe it's health. Maybe, maybe it's, it's something that's happening at work. Maybe it's uh, something in your marriage or relationship or, your, you know, uh, a dynamic that's happening as your kids are growing up or whatever it is. You can identify what you really worship, not with your mouth, but what you really worship when something causes your emotions to go radioactive. Right? Here's a good self-diagnose what we worship. If someone asks you, how are you doing? How do you find yourself answering that question? Uh, does your mind continually go back to your job satisfaction? So if you don't like your job, then you can't be doing well. Does your mind constantly go back to your income? If you don't have a specific amount or certain things that you can afford, then, then are you not doing well? Does it go to your looks, you know, and your age? Uh, does it go to your relationship status or the entertainment value in your life? I did nothing, so, you know, my life was not that great this week. You see, it's important to examine what we value, what we desire, because we, without knowing it, we can find ourselves not just pursuing these things or valuing these things, which is good, right? It's good to value a good job. It's good to value um, a good week where you, maybe you're active and whatnot. But sometimes we can find ourselves worshiping it, controlled by it, unbalanced by it, as Scripture says, tossed to and fro by it, and eventually consumed by it. This brings us to the next thing we see in our passage, distorted worship. Throughout the Gospels, the chief priests and synagogue leaders felt threatened by Jesus' presence. They felt threatened by him, by his presence, by his wisdom, by his power, by his following. You know, they were seeing people gravitate towards Jesus and not them, and this made them tremendously insecure and jealous. Uh, John chapter 11 says this, the chief priests gathered the council and this is right before our passage, right? We're in chapter 12. The chief priest gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. You see, the chief priests, they worshiped their power. And so biblical scholars connect this passage with the chief priests 
uh, our passage today with this expensive perfume and in Judas lifting the group's funds and then his betrayal Jesus in the next chapter for money. Scholars connect these pieces and identify the theme of the dangerous trap of money. Now, nuance is necessary when we discuss the Bible's treatment of money, right? Uh, Because on one hand, the Bible says a lot of positive things about money, about wealth and and material possessions. There are all kinds of affirmation for making money and material wealth in the Bible. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says that God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, Right? It is God who provides us richly with these things to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy these things. Amen. And in the Old Testament, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Job, they were all very, very wealthy. Right? They, were, they were very, very wealthy. And they were also all lovers of God. You can be both. But at the same time, there are these amazing warnings about the spiritual danger of money and how it can distort you, how it can oppress you, and how it can be an instrument of oppression. 1 Timothy, in the same chapter, right? 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing this to his, uh, his mentee, Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, this is what he writes. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many ruins. So what, what you notice here, though, it's, it's not that money is evil. What Paul is saying, the love of money, right? The inordinate desire for money, whether you have it or not, the craving for money. It's not bad to have, you know, a Big Mac every now and then, okay? But if you're always craving it, then you might have health problems down the line. You might be pained with many ruins. It's this, 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 this obsessive desire that Paul says can be a power, it can be a dangerous trap. And so for Judas and the high priest, money and power had become their inner religion. They craved it, it controlled them, it distorted them, it consumed them. They were even to go to the lengths of killing and to have this so before they knew it they were trapped and that that's sort of the, the the difference we see here as bible scholars see the difference between mary and the chief priest and judas the difference is that the judas and the high priest they both had money right M- mary as we'll see has this expensive perfume but one was controlled by it and the other wasn't right for mary money was the means that god had gifted her blessed her to to serve him to love others for judas a god and others was the means to acquire the wealth that they worshipped. So that's the thing about money. It has a tendency to take over your life. Uh, Before we know it, we can be trapped by it. And this brings us to the third thing we see in our passage, fearless worship. You know, uh, what we see here, what Mary does is so unpractical, yet so absolutely amazing and inspiring. You see, this, this, this story is told in actually uh, all four Gospels. And in, in, in some of these accounts, Jesus says, she will be forever remembered by this amazing act. Right? In a world driven by money, Mary gives us hope to be free from the trap of money. You see, in those days, when you came into a house gathering, it was perfectly normal to get out the perfume. 
to get out ointment, right? These were the years before deodorant, uh, right? These were the years before toothbrushes and toothpaste, right? Before electricity, so you couldn't take a shower anytime you wanted. There wasn't that running water. This was before modern transportation. You were walking all the time. This was before air conditioning. So in a hot and humid climate where everyone traveled by foot, you can imagine that when you entered into a home, if you have everyone traveling by foot, everyone could smell terrible, right? It smells like a gym locker room, okay? Uh, men's gym locker room, okay? <laughs> right? Spices and aromatics and fragrances, they were, they were, they were critical, so it's perfectly normal if you entered a, a house gathering during that time to get out some perfume. And uh, you couldn't have a pleasant, a wonderful gathering without it. And, and, and someone would just put a dab of it on your forehead. And immediately you're, you're enveloped in this, this fragrance, this aromatic, this, prote- this protective shield. But this is no ordinary perfume. Right? Mary takes this very costly perfume. The text tells us uh, that it's worth more than 300 denarii. One denarii was the Roman currency for the daily minimum wage. So this was about right, 300 days worth of minimum wage. Uh, this was about coming out to, to our time today, scholars say about $40,000. Right? $40, You're thinking, oh, daily minimum is a $40,000 perfume, right? And probably you're thinking, and I, I, obviously I'm thinking before I'm doing my, my research, well, like, who keeps this in their home? It's ridiculous. Well, back then there were, there were no 401ks, <laughs> right? There were no savings. You kept your wealth in tangible assets, and, and you diversified your wealth in land and livestock and jewelry and ointments and gold and other precious commodities. And so when Mary saw people taking this out, they're thinking, oh my, Mary is bringing out the crown jewel, right? It's like when your friend brings out that, that's, that 21-year-old scotch. You're like, oh, <laughs> right? You know, right? How, they're thinking, how generous of Mary to give Jesus just a dab of this most expensive perfume, right? A drop, a drop would just cost two, a $200 drop. Extravagant, but a one-time honor for a special person for a special occasion. But what Mary does is so startling. She doesn't just give Jesus a little dab. She pours the whole thing out. As verse 3 says, the whole house was filled with this fragrance. Besides Mary's home, this probably would have been her most valuable possession. Friends, can you imagine loving someone so much? Right? Maybe a family member. Right? Maybe a parent or a child. You love someone so much that you wouldn't think twice about giving them a $40,000 gift. Right? Maybe, maybe your, your, your parents' car broke down, and you're like, yeah, I can, let's do this. Right? But like, your friend's car broke down. Hey, can I borrow $40,000? I know, bro. Right? No. You, you know, like, uh, you know, I hope you have, maybe, like, maybe you could buy a used car for $5,000. I can help, help you out with that. Right? Can you imagine this relationship that Mary had with Jesus? It's incredible. But there's more. In those days, when a person fell into debt, and couldn't make up their debts, you couldn't declare bankruptcy, right? Um, they had to go into servitude and work off their debt. And there are many kinds of servitude. Uh, the highest servant worked with the finances and helped with the business affairs of the household. Uh, you know, they were, you know, they were, middle, they were the middle of the road. There were errand runners. There were kitchen workers, kitchen aides. But the lowest kind of servant, the absolute lowest servant, washed the feet of the people who entered into the home. Right? This was, again, remember, before socks and shoes, okay? Right? It's dusty. Everyone walked everyone, everywhere. You know, you know, yesterday I was walking champ. I stepped 
in dog poo, okay? <laughs> All right? So people are walking everywhere. They're step, stepping in cow, cow dung. They're stepping in horse dung. One's fil- uh, feet were filthy. So what Mary is doing and what she's saying here is, Jesus, I'm indebted to you, right? I'm in debt to you out of everything you've done for me. And I don't want to just give you something. I want to serve you. There are servants here, and they don't want to do this. But I want to do this for you. Because you've done this for us. You do this for us. You love the broken. You love the hurting. You love the outcasts. Right? You were with the leprous. You were with the poor. It's amazing here. But there's more. Because back then, a woman's hair symbolized her individuality. Right? It was her form of self-expression. It was prized. It was well taken care of. And even today, right, we take our hair very seriously. <laughs> okay? People pay enormous amounts of money for good hair. We always notice someone who's, who's blessed with nice hair. Right? But in those days, it was even more so, especially for a woman living in a patriarchal society. There weren't many ways, unfortunately, for her to express herself. So Mary unties her hair and and she wipes Jesus' feet. You know, she's not using a towel, she's using her hair. And it's it's unthinkable that anyone would do this, that they would take this, you know, uh, their their self-expression here. And and some some, uh, historians and theologians say that a woman's hair was her glory, right? And, and, you know, they're being hyperbolic, they're being extreme, but yeah, we we do take some pride in our hair, right? You know, like... There's there's some value in that. And what Mary is saying is, Lord, I'm not going to just give you something, and I'm not just going to serve you. I'm going to do what I think you deserve. I'm not going to be held back. I'm not going to hold back my heart. I'm not going to hold back my passion. I'm not going to let what other people think hold me back, because you are it. You're the truth. Right? Through every blessing, through every battle, through every victory, through every heartache, through every circumstance, Jesus, you are it. You are the truth. You are the life. You are the way. You are God. And this is amazing. You know, this is not an ordinary gift. This is no ordinary servant. She's this, Mary is no ordinary woman. But what's the response from the room in our passage? It says that Judas speaks up. He says, whoa, 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 why are we doing this, right? We could have... We could have given this to the poor, and then later uh, John tells us it's really because he would help himself to the money bag. He was the accountant for the, for the, for the disciples. In Mark's gospel in chapter 14, uh, it says that the whole room scolded her. Right? They're saying, Mary, what are you doing? Where is your sense of proportion? This is, this is, not, this is not a smart thing that you're doing. Right? The Greek word for scolded in the, one that, uh, in the gospel of Mark that that Mark says to describe how the room responded to her means to bellow with anger. It's the same word that describes how Jesus was feeling when he approached Lazarus' tomb, right? He was angry that Lazarus had died, that sin had brought his friend to death. And so this room is the same thing. You know, they're angry that Mary is doing this. You can imagine Martha running into a room, her sister, right? Mary, what have you done? What did you do? Right? We were supposed to save that, for, you know, that, that perfume. What Mary did was so extravagant, so outrageous, so over the top, so offensive to the people who were there that, that pretty much the whole room started to yell at her. But Mary doesn't care about what people think. 
She doesn't care what the culture thinks. She doesn't even care about what her sister thinks. She's looking at Jesus and saying, you know what? I only care about what you think. I know who you are. Right? You're my fortress. You're my forgiveness. You're my provider. You're my protector. I know who you are. And I only care about what you think. And then in Mark's account, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. Right? What Jesus is saying, you all have no idea how much I deserve. Y'all have no idea how appropriate this is. Y'all have no idea what I'm about to do. This perfume, it's nothing. But how can Mary do this? How can Mary do this? This brings us to our last point, worship revival. Mary is very special. Every time you see Mary in the gospel, she's always at Jesus' feet. If you go to Luke 10, you see Mary and Martha, they're hosting around and she's mad because why Mary's not helping her and she even tells on her and says Jesus tell Mary to help me right <laughs> that's what she says whereas Mary Mary is at Jesus' feet listening she's a disciplined learner she's reflecting on the things that he's teaching and Jesus says Martha Martha you are anxious and troubled about many things but Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her the second time we see Mary is in John 11. Her brother Lazarus has just died. Jesus shows up. Martha, the anxious one, the controlling one, is the first that runs to Jesus before he even gets there. And she's the one to tell Jesus that he's messed up, that he's too late, that Lazarus is dead. He should have been there. He should have, present, he should have prevented this. So Martha says to Jesus here, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus has to rebuke Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And Martha said, responds back to Jesus, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? She's pretty much brushing Jesus off. Yeah, I know that. But even now, you can, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Right? I get that, but God, Jesus, you, you can fix this. Come on. She's trying to manipulate Jesus, trying to get him to do what she thinks he should have done. You see, Martha couldn't trust Jesus. She didn't trust his timing, his plans, his wisdom, his words. She was constantly trying to override Jesus. But when Mary comes to Jesus after her brother dies, she says the very same thing, right? Master, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. But she doesn't say anything else. That's it. Her approach is different. She falls then at Jesus' feet and she starts to weep. She's not blaming. She's not guilt tripping. She shows her trust her submission in Jesus' plan. But it's not easy. She just lost her brother. Jesus sees this, and so what does Jesus do? Jesus starts to weep with her. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't rebuke Mary. He doesn't try to instruct her. He doesn't give her a theological lesson. Why? Because Mary already understands. She understands more than anyone who Jesus is. Mary knows that Jesus is not her genie, He's a savior. He is God. He is, he is ultimately powerful. He is ultimately loving, but he is also ultimately wise. Jesus isn't a masochist. He doesn't just bring suffering into our life for no purpose at all. The cross proves this, right? In his own suffering and death for us, we have eternal life. Right? Mary understood this more than everyone. She knew that Jesus came and he was going to save her from her sins. He was going to break the power of sin and the power of death. And she's always listening to Jesus. She knows Jesus has been talking about, I'm going to die for the sins of the world 
So she knew that she wouldn't always have Jesus with her. Mary knew that he was going to die for her. So here, what Mary is doing, Lord, I, I know what you give me, and here is what I want to give to you. Let me just close with this. Friends, when you see Jesus dying for you, losing his throne, his glory, his power, everything, to know that he values you and me more than all the things anyone could ever value in this world, then what this means is that you are his treasure. Right? You are the most important thing to him. And when you see that you are the most important thing to him, when you are his treasure, then, you will, then he will become your treasure. And when you understand that you are his treasure and then you become his treasure, then you will understand that you are already wealthy, you are already secure, you are already glorious in God's economy. You know that Jesus is really the one who humbly serves you faithfully. He's praying for you. He's fighting for you now. You'll know that Jesus didn't hold anything back. No act of devotion is beneath him. He's not ashamed of you. He's committed to you no matter what. And when you see this, friends, when you see how you are Jesus' treasure, then your heart will be revived from worshiping other things to worshiping Jesus. You know, when you get this, when Jesus starts to rise up in your heart, it's like the stars, you know? Uh, you know, as the sun goes up, right, the stars fade away. Right? You'll be revived. And, and these things that seem so amazing, so valuable, so precious, they can no longer drive you with fear, right? You'll start to trust God. They no longer trap you. They simply just are. They're no, longer the end, uh, they're no longer the end, but they become the means to love God and to worship him. Friends, do you see what Mary saw? And if you do, can you say with her, Jesus, I owe you everything, but on the cross, you gave me everything. Friends, worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we, uh, when we look at this story with Mary, um, you know, for some of us, we've, we've heard this story of this, this woman that brings this alabaster jar of perfume and very expensive perfume and pours it all onto Jesus. Uh, we've, we forget maybe the detail of her washing it with Jesus, on Jesus' feet and then even more washing it with her hair. And this is, this, is, this is an extraordinary moment. It's stunning. It's amazing. And boy, it makes us admire this woman, Mary. And it makes us want to look forward to meeting her in heaven. She'll probably be sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. And... Uh, we don't know out of why out of all the people it was Mary that got this. But we know that in your word you tell us to pray, to ask for your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to see 
who you are, to know who you are, to get it, to care about only what you think. And so we ask, we know that this is a tremendous struggle in our lives, what we value and the fine line between valuing it, working hard, being a good steward of our body and time, and then worshiping it. And even I and everyone in this room, we, we can acknowledge that we do not keep that line perfectly, and that's why we need Jesus to forgive us. And so we confess that too many times we, we worship the wrong things in this life. We understand our purposes the wrong way. You have blessed us to be a blessing. Father, help us to love you, to love our neighbor. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. So Father, would you continue to strengthen us and to mature us? We know that this will not happen on one Sunday or from one sermon, but it will be a lifelong battle, a lifelong journey. But Lord, we want to we know you like Mary knew you. We want to experience that joy that trust, that love. So would you teach us, would you open the eyes of our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.